This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com. A lot of what motivates socialist thinking is, is, is examining not are things getting better than they used to be, but are we closing the gap between what humanity could do and what it has done? Hello and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Nathan Robinson, who is the editor of Current Affairs, the author of the book Why You Should Be a Socialist. Um, he is himself a socialist. Uh, and he's a fascinating and I think in some ways one of the most persuasive of like the new generation of socialist writers and arguers and, and thinkers. I've read his work and, and gotten a lot out of it. I've been the target of <laughs> some of it as well. Uh, but we have a good civil relationship behind the scenes. And I was excited to have him on the show to talk about this. One thing he does here that I want to set up as a way of thinking about the conversation to come is he draws a distinction between the socialist ethic and socialist organization, which on the one hand, I think can be seen as a bit of a dodge and it can be hard sometimes to trace the boundaries of like, well, how would this socialism actually work? But on the other hand, I think it's very important to listen to this distinction and take it seriously because when you try to understand why are a lot of people now identifying as socialists, it actually is about this ethic. So in some ways, I think that he's gotten something here deeply right that would be easy to dismiss. But if you dismiss it, you're going to miss a lot of what is happening in current left politics right now. Um, also, you'll hear us talk a little bit about the Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn election in the UK. Obviously, when we uh, did this episode, it was before that election had happened. But I left it in because I think it is a, it, it's useful to actually have that conversation sort of beforehand because some of the predictions in it are relevant for what we were talking about. So, yeah, time is a flat circle and you don't always hear these when they happen. So I apologize for any weirdness that creates. But I think it's still useful to, to hear the conversation in its original context. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow.Vox.com. Um, we're getting closer and closer to my book tour and to why we're polarized coming out. So if you've not pre-ordered that or checked out uh, where the first leg of the book tour is coming, do that at whywerepolarized.com. But here, without further ado, is Nathan Robinson. Nathan Robinson, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello, Ezra. Nice to be with you. So I was going to begin by asking, what is socialism? But actually, having read the book now, I want to ask you a different question. Yes. What good. is the difference between a socialist ethic, which often seems to me to be what you're arguing for here, and a socialist economy? Well, you know, there's the great Eugene Debs quote, which is, while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there's a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. 
And that's not a description of worker ownership, right? That's a description of a feeling about looking at the world and feeling solidarity with people who are at the bottom, with the underclass, with the imprisoned. And I think that is just as important to what animates socialists in having socialist sentiments as some idea about how production should be managed. And people focus a lot on the question of like central planning. But I think I've been doing interviews of socialists, interviewing DSA people around the country, and I always ask them, you know, why why are you a socialist? What does it mean to you? And and the unifying thread really is not like a very clear vision for how a socialist economy will work. It, It really is this deep discomfort and anger and this powerful emotion that you see when you look at the world and you see power relationships and you see a small class of people owning so much and a large number of people working so hard and having so little. And that historically, that is the thread that has run through so much socialist writing and speaking. And there are there are intra-socialist divides over nearly every question. But the one thing that socialists all come together on is that the idea of having you know, wealth and poverty coexist. The idea of, you know, hierarchical relationships and social classes is really, really disturbing uh, to us on a very visceral level. And, you know, socialists look around the world and we don't see why people aren't more upset by various things. You have a line towards the end of the book that I found really helpful. And you write that socialism is a term that describes a bundle of different political philosophies, some of which emphasize greater state control of the economy, some of which actually want less state control of the economy, but all of which seek to empower the working class and deplore the concentration of capital in the hands of rich people. And one of the things that you trace in the book is that there are libertarian socialists who are concerned about um, the power of the state. There are um, much more statist socialists who want to increase the power of the state. But if socialism just ends up being an anger at injustice, which many people I think feel they have, um, certainly I feel I have it, does it describe anything all that useful? How do you actually draw the line of who is and who yeah. isn't a socialist when it can when it can involve both uh, what we would think of as a version of libertarianism and a version of, you know, state planned economy socialism. Yeah, of course. the <laughs> The response that you always get is people go, "Well, I don't like injustice," and you know, uh, a, a Hubert Humphrey had a line, you know, "Concern for the unfortunate." That's not socialism. Now, there's one part of it where I don't quite believe people a lot of the time, and one reason is because they're not, you know, <laughs> Ralph Nader says you got to have fire in your belly. And it's about what people choose to focus their energy on and what issues they highlight. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, for example, brings everything back to, you know, his his broken record about working people's conditions, their conditions at work, the, you know, the ability to pay for health care. He won't shut up about those things. And is that what you spend all of it? So it's about sort of how much time do you spend thinking about these things? You can affirm sort of rhetorically, oh, yes, that makes me upset. I don't like that. But I do think there is a very, there is a real difference in the kind of emotion that animates socialism. In fact, emotion is a big part of it. There's this great book called The Romance of American Communism uh, that is about sort of the emotional root 
roots of why people joined the Communist Party. And there's this real, this feeling of solidarity. Do you feel that, like, you take Eugene Debs's words seriously, where he said, while there is a soul in prison, I am not free, which <laughs> that's that's quite a radical statement, right? Because it means that you don't feel free until there's prison abolition. So I, I do think there is a sense in which in which socialists are always kind of the ones who don't just deplore things and, and affirm that they're bad, um, but, you know, won't leave it alone. They refuse to content themselves. And, you know, the, but the other thing is there is something substantive to it, which, as I say, as I said before, there is the owning class and the working class, right? So that is something that libertarians, for example, when libertarians say, well, I, of course, I care about homelessness and it's just a matter of housing supply, but they don't think about, like, democracy at work very much. And that's something that socialists, you know, almost uniformly talk about is uh, people having to sell their labor and having to accept conditions that they wouldn't accept under equal bargaining uh, power. So power, socialists talk a lot about power and inequalities of power really upset them. So I want to use actually healthcare as a good example here. So I'm obviously part of a bunch of different (laughs) ongoing healthcare debates. And something I'll see in those debates is you will have activists who have been working every day for the past 20, 30 years, people who run organizations or are out there on the front lines or run interest groups or whatever it might be, who've been trying to get people health care. But they believe for reasons of political pragmatism or because of how they think about the state or whatever it might be, that the way to do it is more incrementalist. And then you'll have people who are out of the more DSA wing of the Democratic Party or just of the DSA itself saying, you know, you're a terrible neoliberal um, because you won't support Medicare for all. And without trying to settle that debate, one of the things that debate says to me is that the distinction you're drawing here is not the way a lot of people see it. There's no doubt in my mind that some of these people who are getting called neoliberals but have worked on healthcare for 30 years trying to get the working class affordable healthcare care more about it than the people who've logged onto Twitter that week to attack them. Now, that doesn't strike everybody, but there is a way in which, as far as I can tell, actual socialists really do see whether or not you are supporting kind of fully state-based egalitarian solutions as the measure of whether or not you deserve to be called um, not just an adherent to this philosophy, but somebody who cares enough about the the working class to 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 be able to uh, claim that ethic. One reason people are suspicious, though, is because a lot of the people who voice support for incremental, pragmatic, what have you, don't seem to hate the idea of an insurance industry CEO, which socialists do. Socialists think the idea of profiting off denying people care, of making a lot of money, someone gets millions of dollars off of my health, our healthcare plans. They're very disturbed by that, right? That that other people live well. And that class element of it, of some people are, are running companies and those companies, their business model depends on you know, reducing the amount that they pay, that really disturbs socialists in a very, very visceral way, which is one reason they're very anti uh, the the concept of of private insurance. Profiting off of people is, is something that really, really upsets uh, socialists. That makes sense to me. But then where does somebody who is a libertarian socialist or a market socialist in some of the frameworks you build in the book, where do they fit in? <laughs> well, you know, it, you'd get different answers on this, right? And I think 
there are some libertarian socialists that use that term to mean basically anarchism. And a lot of anarchists have called themselves libertarian socialists. And anarchists are not the most pragmatic people. You probably have to ask an anarchist what an anarchist healthcare plan would look like. The, the libertarian socialist tradition that I sort of operate in is basically the one that Noam Chomsky uh, advocates, which is you draw inspiration from anarchist analysis where you're very anti-hierarchy and you know you question everything and ultimately you'd like to see much much less state control of people's lives and you're very pro civil liberties and you're also suspicious of people who advocate socialism but then seem to want to concentrate power in very few hands which was supposed to be the problem we were addressing chomsky someone who in the in the very short run obviously um sees a single-payer healthcare plan as a pretty reasonable thing. You can make pragmatic accommodations to the realities of the world in which we live while having this, you know, incredible utopian vision for, you know, several hundred years in the future. And um, and so much of it, so many of us, you know, have have rallied around things that we think are radical enough to change people's lives very significantly. But they're not the way that we necessarily would live in our utopia. For example, like labor unions. Labor unions are not an optimal institution. Optim labor unions presume a kind of divide between people who are working and people who are owning. And obviously, if you had socialism, common ownership, you wouldn't have labor unions because you wouldn't have that division. But building the labor movement is a really, really important part of socialism today because it helps to sort of equalize out those those power relationships. Let's talk about libertarian socialism for a minute because I think that's a, a thread or a movement or an idea, I don't know what to call it exactly, that most people are not that familiar with. So you identify uh, just there and in the book at times as a libertarian socialist. Also in the book, Virtually every uh, idea you have is a lot more state, right? You want like bigger healthcare programs and a UBI and so on. So what does it mean to be a libertarian socialist? Well, one of the main emphases is on civil liberties, right? And on free speech and against policing and militarism, the arms of the state that are the armed parts of the state, right? The really, really repressive parts of the state. And so we are less suspicious necessarily of the state as a means of moving money around, but very much suspicious of the state when the state is something is the prison system, for example. And that's why most libertarian socialists are prison abolitionists at the same time as they believe in Medicare for all. So that's interesting. So so talk a bit more about that. What kinds of things do you trust the state to do and what kinds of things don't you trust the state to do? And what is a principle that helps you decide? Well, I mean, the principle that helps you decide is you look at the effect of that on people's lives and do they seem to be becoming more free or less free. And and these are difficult things. To, to, what is freedom? Is real freedom, you know, the freedom from want or is real freedom the freedom to bully other people? Um, I, you can't answer fundamental problems of political philosophy with, with, with slogans. But uh, as I say, you know, you can, you can look at, well, what is this government program going to do for people? Does it seem repressive or does it actually seem to liberate people? Or does this seem like something or just like, you know, marijuana prosecutions or something like that uh, seems actually uh, to, or prosecuting sex work, for example, that's the sort of thing where libertarian socialists are very against criminalizing sex work, for example. So I want in here to make sure I'm representing some of the other, the the I guess the ideas people have about socialism, which may or may not describe your socialism, which is one of the things you'll hear without getting into Soviet Union examples, which I think are not actually that helpful. 
One of the things you'll hear is that when you begin to build up these structures, when you begin to run or try to run the the government off of these structures, you just get much bigger state-sponsored enterprises. You get very large hierarchies. You don't have an end to power structures. What you have is a restructuring of power under state control, which in some cases can be good, but in some cases can be uh, a problem. So from the libertarian perspective, if you are just concerned about the amount of power the state has over people's lives, how can you have a socialism that does not in in, in and of itself lead to a huge number of um, those decisions being brought under the control of the state? Well, it depends. Some people are more cynical about the state than others. I think a lot of these problems are often problems of management and problems of failures to make, to build democratic and accountable institutions, which is why such an important emphasis of democratic socialism is to always have the state be under the meaningful control of actual people uh, so that it doesn't end up doing things that in practice people dislike. But also many libertarian socialists is one reason that they, you know, if we're talking of a an economy that is organized in worker cooperatives and technically they're private because they're not controlled by the government, but we have workplace democracy, uh, you know, market socialism, um, would be okay with that. And so these are difficult questions, right? Because there's a balance. There's always a balance. You want you, you unless you empower the state in certain ways, right? You know, healthcare is is an example of something where, unless you have the government step in to do something about it, people die. And so there's not really an easy way to give a, a democratic alternative or to organize something outside of a big institution. Um, but you can have your aspiration be that, and you can always be asking yourself questions like, well, is this meaningfully accountable? Is this, is this, you know, do voters really, really want this? And that's why democracy is just as important as equality. Yeah, I want to put a pin in democracy because I think it's an important part of the conversation. But one of the things to, to lay my cards on the table that I want to do in this conversation is pull out what are the guiding principles so people can understand what helps people who are socialists make decisions about what is good and what is bad. There are parts of your book that I found made it fuzzier for me, but one of the lines that really helped me was you write, and I'm paraphrasing you very slightly here, the distinction between public and private is something of a fiction, and we should probably focus less on it than on questions of who gets the benefits and who holds decision-making power. And that seemed quite clear. So talk a bit about how you would structure that question. When you ask who gets the benefits and who holds decision-making power, what are the answers to that that would make something socialist or good um, versus not so, not socialist and bad? Well, let's let's try let's take a concrete example, uh, which is schools. And there's a big debate over whether like charter schools, for example, are public or private. And you know, charter school advocates say no, they're public schools, and then critics say no, these are actually private schools. The real serious question that you should actually look at is. Well, how are these schools arranged the way we would want a democratic schooling system to operate, right? Is there meaningful uh, accountability? Are they the sorts of schools that parents want for their children? Do teachers, are teachers unionized? Do they have good union jobs? And is this the kind of structure that, that conforms to democratic principles? So you could have a school that is technically a charter school that conforms very well to those principles. One reason people are very uh, skeptical of charter schools on the left is that they think a lot of them are are not kind of accountable and they do sort of want 
teachers who aren't unionized and who are easily replaceable. And those are kind of the root of the of the problem. So instead of focusing on, on public and private, because you can imagine, right, there are state institutions that are bad. A co-op, for example, is better than a state oil company, for example, right? A, a co-op making for selling vegetables, right? It's more c- closer to socialist principles than having just a, a you know an oil company run by the state and it's uh, socialism because it's the state. And the real serious question is, well, who's benefiting, right? Is is the work that this institution is doing is and who's um who's in control? So I think that question of control and particularly control under democratic procedures is a is an interesting one. So there's a well-known thing where the socialists took uh, control in mid-20th century America and actually in other countries too of a lot of different organizations by just being the people who are willing to be in all the meetings and sit through all the meetings and then take control of the organization when it finally came to the vote. And one of the things, as somebody who also believes pretty deeply in increasing like small-day democratic representation and control over the way things work, is that when I look at the history of that, I see a lot of very well-meaning processes that very quickly end up getting captured. And so like a good example of this actually is in the way we structure regulation in America, you have all of these processes of public comment, of um, public hearings and so on, and in practice, the people who can pay lobbyists and astroturf groups and everyone else to go and have the knowledge to know when every one of those meetings is and so on, they end up capturing those processes. So they end up actually being not a way the public can be – the public can have control, but actually another way that uh, special interests end up being able to hijack the process. And so how do you make sure that some of these things actually are – small-D democratic, because the, the the frustration a lot of people have, say, with public schools, and this is not really an argument that I would make myself, but it is one that I at least see some validity to, is that oftentimes they're not under small-D democratic control. Oftentimes they have been captured either by local governments or unions or so on in ways that are not actually serving the students very well at all. And so bad teachers are being kept on. Like the, There are complaints here that are very legitimate. So how do you think about those structure questions? Yeah, I mean, well, you're you're completely right, right? If a process is captured by special interests, it's not democratic. And I think that is one that's actually one reason why socialists are so focused on redistributing power and not having a an owning class because uh, what a lot of socialists will tell you about social democracy and why they're skeptical is, is that they don't believe social democracy can last because they believe as long as you have a small class of of capitalists they're going to be trying to subvert and privatize and claw back the small gains uh, that you've made if you think about schools yeah i sort of wish almost that the school reform movement had gone in a more left direction because I think it could have made better progress if it pitched itself as wanting to ally with teachers' unions and ally with, you know, people who thought, who were skeptical of the privatization of schools and say, look, what we really want is reform within the public school system, but we value public schools and we care about having schools be public. There's something really powerful about having an institution that is public and that we own it together. And a lot of the reasons that people on the left really react very hostilely to the charter school movement and even even when you have schools that are doing very well and improving students' performance is that we don't really trust institutions that are taken out 
to any degree of the of the public realm. And you can say, well, yeah, but the institutions you do have in the public realm are not meaningfully public. But that's why I think the argument that we really need to make for reform is we need to reform the public institutions. You don't want to crush unions. You want democratic unions. And that's why you have people like, uh, for example, Jane McAlevey, uh, you know, who is a, a big labor proponent of democratic unions and talking about how unions haven't served their members. They've served a small class of people at the top. So what you need to do is you need to restructure unions. There's nothing inherently democratic about a union. They can be captured by special interests. So you need the right kind of union, the right kind of public school. Let's talk about what you mean by democratic, because we have a pretty thin definition of democracy and the way it tends to operate in our political conversations, right? When people say make something more democratic, they tend to mean make it easier to vote or at least make it yeah, easier for when people vote that the votes yeah. get counted. You have a much more thoroughgoing view of democracy and why it's at the core of your version, at least of socialism. So can you talk a bit about what you mean when you talk about democracy? Well, I mean, it's quite simple, right? It's meaningful ability to participate in the making of the rules that govern your life and affect you, right? Getting to be part of the decisions that are ultimately going to shape your life. So a workplace is more democratic if it has a co-determination system where workers get seats on the board because the decisions that the board makes are going to fundamentally affect the conditions that the people who work in the place operate under. If you take an Amazon fulfillment center, right, the people who work packing and shipping boxes they don't get to participate in the decisions about the quotas and what's reasonable and how long the bathroom breaks should be. It's an undemocratic workplace, and we can imagine a more democratic workplace where they had a, had representatives and they, you know, they could fire their boss. Right? There was a plebiscite every month when you, whether you kept the boss, um, and. And so you can imagine that in the workplace setting and then more broadly, you can think about, well, what is democracy in regard to government? And it really is a sense of meaningful participation. Did I was my voice heard? And that's very subjective. And you can you can come up with lots of different processes that uh, that you think enhance. And there are, of course, difficult questions about whether democracy just means, to the extent it means majority rule um, or and the degree to which democracy requires protecting minority interests. But what we do know is that if people feel as if th their voice, they couldn't be, nothing they say matters. Nothing, if they go to their school board, it doesn't matter what they say. Nobody cares. Um, you know, the, the elections are all decided beforehand. They don't have enough money. They don't even have enough time to participate in politics. This is one reason that uh, democracy is tied to making sure that people have reasonable working hours and lots of time for leisure and can have their kids taken care of is because otherwise nobody can go to their city council meeting. And it's also why uh, local journalism is crucial to democracy because no one's going to be able to learn about what is going on in their city government if there aren't local newspapers. Um, so those things are all really, really important for, for what, you know, democracy is a big, broad, abstract word that we can all have arguments over what its meaning in practice is. But what we can start with is examining each institution and examining our society by asking the question, do people meaningfully participate in the decisions that affect them? And this seems to me to be a place where at least for right now, you do see one of the dividing lines between the people at least I would consider socialists and the people I would consider more traditional in, in the American political term liberals, right? Not in the classical liberal term, which is I think both sides of that divide agree that American politics should be more small democratic, that you should have it be easier to vote. You should have these voting ID laws, et cetera. But the socialists are more concerned with 
private democracy, what happens in businesses yeah. and corporations, what is going on in, in, in people's private lives that either make them democratic or, or lead them to be exploited and not have a say. Whereas I think more traditional liberals, they may want people to have uh, health care and, you know, an earned income tax credit and so on, such that they have a better quality of life. But the question of democratic participation and part of the question of reaching into corporations and, and, and other kinds of entities to say you need to be more small-d democratic. People deserve to have a voice. How you're structured is not appropriate. That's a little bit more of a line people don't want to cross on the, again, sort of more traditional liberal side. When you say reaching in, it sort of implies automatically that we're talking about state action. But really, socialists are talking about empowerment that can occur without state action, right? I mean, when you build labor unions, they make these kinds of demands. And one of the things that, you know, there's nothing about reaching in, in forming a union in your workplace to try to get more of a say in the decisions that happen. Like, for example, right, uh, you know, Kickstarter is trying to, trying to unionize. And they're trying to unionize because they felt that management was overriding their decisions about what kinds of content was appropriate. And, you know, there's no external force there. It's the employees trying to get together and adjust the power relationships so they have more democracy in the workplace. And that is something that has always been a very strong concern of the left, as you say. And I think that is a real dividing line. And it is one reason that socialists are so critical of what they see, what they call liberalism, because we also know many of us have worked for example, at like nonprofit institutions where they're working on a social justice thing, but then they're like really abusive and nasty in private and like don't actually treat their workers well. Um, and those are the kinds of, of hip when people talk liberal hypocrisy, that's sort of what they mean, which is like, yeah, you want some kinds of social justice, but not the kinds of social justice that would take away your wealth and power and status. But I think you're being a little more modest in the ambitions than they really are. I, I, I don't argue the point that, I mean, Vox Media just unionized not long ago, and that was not something where the government reached in and, 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 did, it, and did it on behalf of the company. But I think that if you look at the agenda that is emergent here, for instance, you see um, with Elizabeth Warren and then also with Bernie Sanders, ideas about passing laws that would create co-determination plans where you would have workers on the boards. And I think if you want to imagine a kind of restructured society at the level that you talk about in sort of the socialist utopia, and we'll talk about that in a sec, that you are talking about people collectively coming together and restructuring the rules of the road, if only because right now unions operate under very difficult and very um, uh, adversarial circumstances, if only because there's actually a pretty limited set of structures that people can use to create a more democratic workplace. I mean, you do at some point have to have more power than people can just sort of do individually. I wanted to just to make a very narrow point there, which was talking about workplace democracy doesn't necessarily mean talking about having external forces interfere in what we would consider the, the, the private sphere. That, that's not inherent to talking about workplace democracy. But yes, it's true that in practice, you know, the only way for people to, you know, the, the state is a very powerful force and the only, it's how we act together as a society. And so, yes, of course, and I, I, I support the plans being put forth by Sanders and Warren. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? 
State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Let's talk about utopia. A, a, a good a good chunk of the book um, is devoted to not just arguing for different conceptions of utopias, but arguing that the ability to talk about utopia is important. When when we spoke previously, you asked me for my utopia um, and like what it would look like. Didn't you say it was France? I don't think I did say it was France. What did you first say? I, I said I think <laughs> my favorite healthcare system is France. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think if you ask me sort of my like favorite healthcare system, what would I do if I had a magic wand? I would do France. But my utopia has a lot of stuff around animal suffering and other things that yeah, France right. does not do. But let's start with just the importance of utopia and the thinking. Yeah, and socialists, what that is one thing that distinguishes them, right, historically, is that they envision a radically different world. And I tend to think that like it is very, very important to imagine what a perfect world would look like because when you take your pragmatic baby steps, which you need to do, you kind of want to have a sense of, of where you're really going, what, what we could achieve together as a, as a human species. What is the gap between what is and what could be? And that's a lot of what motivates socialist thinking is, is, is examining not are things getting better than they used to be, but are we closing the gap between what humanity could do and what it has done? And, you know, that what humanity could do, that's your utopia. And one of the interesting things about encouraging utopian thinking is – that when you ask people about their utopias and they describe them, you know, so I, I listed all the things that people told me about their utopias and some of them are ridiculous. But a lot of it is stuff that resembles things we have now. So in the utopia, I could go to the doctor without getting a bill, right? I could just not have to think about money at all in regard to my health care. Like healthcare would operate like the fire department where, you know, if I called an ambulance, I didn't have to think about whether I had to pay for it. Um, and we and that's the NHS in England that exists. Socialists put it in place. Right. Um, it's, it's possible. It can be done. A public library is kind of a, a socialist institution. It's it's kind of a radical concept. It's free stuff. It's you go and you get the free, you know, they'll, they'll lend you anything. And you could imagine that if we applied it to all other kinds of things other than books, it would sound very socialistic, very strange. Um, and so when you start to think about, well, what would the utopia be and list all of the characteristics it would have and, you know, people like, you know, people do feel listened to, people participate. Um, and then you go, well, is that, 
is that really truly impossible? And it, and what what what's inspiring about it is that when you come up with this vision, there's no technical impossibility to most of it. It's a political impossibility. One of the things that socialists are always always emphasizing is that things don't have to be this way. We could live in a world without war or without borders, without tyrannical bosses and without landlords. You know, these things are human-created institutions and institutions that we can create we can also hope we could dismantle. And, of course, the pessimists say, well, you know, you're just going to ruin all the little fragile achievements that we've already made by trying to get us towards this. And I think that is a really, really important caution for everyone to bear in mind. But I also don't think it should dull our aspirations because that caution applies anytime there's a big social movement pushing for things that people think are completely politically impossible. Yeah, you know, a, a couple of thoughts on that. One thing is striking about the book is it's not really a blueprint for that utopia. In fact, you say at some point that your socialism doesn't have blueprints. I mean, you you end up with proposing a social democratic agenda in the short term and sort of saying we need to keep taking the taking the steps in that direction. Um, what what seems to me to be actually a pretty big dividing line. And here I'm going to work my way through something that I haven't quite figured out myself. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which we map ideology and temperament on top of each other when they're actually sort of separate axes of people's um, uh, political personalities. So there are people who maybe have a socialist ethic, but they have a conservative temperament. So when they listen to that um, concern, you know, if we move too fast, we might fuck up all these things we've done that have given us all the progress we've already had. That rings a lot louder to them than somebody who has a socialist ethic but has a more revolutionary temperament. Um, or you have people who are – they have like a conservative ideology, but they also have a revolutionary temperament. Um, you know, there's a lot of talking, I think, in a very confusing way about the conservative temperament, right, the kind of thing George Will says he has. Then you look around at the conservative movement and it wants to change things really fast right. and do yeah. a bunch of like, you know, invade Iraq and rebuild it from the ground up and so on. It's not conservative at all. And something that just really did strike me reading the book is that a lot of how – where you might come down on some of these things and a lot of how much some of the cautionary tales about the past uh, matter to you comes down to I think an almost temperamental question of just how do you think societies absorb and react to change. You can, you can have a socialist ethic and be quite concerned about losing what we've already built and you can have a socialist ethic and be quite confident about what you could build in its place. But those two things are not necessarily an ideological question so much as a temperamental one. Yes, that's true. But I also think that when you have this kind of ethic, it often also gives you this very strong feeling of urgency, of why we can't wait, why every moment that a situation persists is morally intolerable and weighs on you. And it's very difficult to maintain the sort of conservative temperament when you constantly feel as if things around you that are completely avoidable should be avoided. I mean, I, to give you just a concrete example of how this sort of manifests in my life, you know, when I hear things about Medicare for All, for example, and I look at like what was done in England and, and in Britain in the post-war period and the founding of the NHS, it seems very, I mean, I can have a cautious attitude, but this seems like the cautious approach considering 
the urgency of making sure people don't have to think about money in regard to their to their healthcare. When I see in my hometown of New Orleans so many homeless people living in the French Quarter on the stoops of the of the large mansions, and I open up the Wall Street Journal's mansion section, which had a front page story recently about how to move your 10,000 square foot home when the sea levels rise. That creates this very, very powerful sense of urgency that sort of overrides, doesn't override your caution. You want to be pragmatic. And there are a lot of people thinking seriously about how you do policy design and, and, and do it well. But it also gives you this real sense of there is no waiting because every every moment you wait is, is, is really... Um, you are living in an indefensible society. And of course, with climate change, you really you really can't wait. Like, that's the sort of thing where, like, that's the sort of thing where, like, unless you have a, a giant shift quite soon, um, you, you know, you could be cautious and temperamental, but, like, the supposedly cautious temperamental thing is actually going to cause a lot of harm in that situation. So I agree with that on actually all of the underlying issues. But this is a place, you were saying a couple minutes ago that one of the things that the socialists have pointed out forever is there's no technical impossibility in this, which I think the word technical is actually doing a lot of work. There's no technical reason we can't have wars. And yet we've had war and fighting and conflict through all of human history. So the the person maybe with what I would call the slightly more conservative temperament says, yeah, I mean, there's no technical reason you can't have war. We've all seen Star Trek, um, although they end up in their own fights. But there is a kind of human nature reason this is very hard to get rid of. And the people who are confident that they're going to get rid of it often end up making things a little bit worse. I do not believe that I feel, say, like less urgency than you do on some of the things like climate change. Um, what I do think is that I have a different set of views, for instance, about what might lead to failure given the constraints of the American political system that makes me more afraid, right? So I I operate under um, a lot of – like literally just like under a lot of fear that given like the very narrow window for getting things done, we are going to fail and then people's lives are going to be on the line. And that there's a way where people, I think, mistake or layer on top like how far you want to go with how much urgency you feel. But a lot of the people who are making compromises they don't want to make, they're making them because they feel that urgency. Your attitude is completely understandable and very rational. And in some ways you have to get past it sometimes. Because, <laughs> well, you absolutely I mean, do have to get past it sometimes. You, you know, because it's it's almost, it's sort of true in all circumstances, right? I mean, I, I was just writing about the sort of first days of the NHS where everyone's going, this is a very, very radical move. This is going to fail. This is going to, you're going to have, you're going to have all of these lines. You're going to have people swarming. The system is going to go bankrupt. It's, it's going to be a complete disaster. Um, and it's the most beloved institution in Britain, right? People would never give it up because free healthcare at the point of use is very, very important to them. You and I differ in our views of, of the possible, but I tend actually not to think that much about what's possible because I feel like a lot of people who have gotten things done in the past have put aside their natural pessimism and they have said, well, by God, we're going to give it a, a good try no matter what. 
And I think that's that's so important to sort of set aside your predictions because it's very hard to predict. And I don't know that we know the constraints of the American political. I don't know if we know uh, whether we could or could not build the kind of social movement that Bernie Sanders is trying to build that would really, really change the American political landscape. He, he's going to try and you might think, well, that that's impossible. But I, I don't know. And I'd like to be with him as he tries. Let, let me hold Bernie Sanders aside for a minute because I do want to talk about his campaign. Um, I'm actually making a slightly different point here because I, I agree with you on the NHS. If you ask me if we passed something like maybe not the NHS specifically, given the upheaval that would create right now, but uh, the French healthcare system, which I think we would both agree is a totally fine healthcare system, um, at least compared to what we have now, would people love it? A hundred percent. They would love it. They would absolutely <laughs> absolutely love it. Like, they would be thrilled. And I've spent a lot of time over the past 15 years of my life arguing for why we should have a system that is unified and doesn't have employer-based health care and blah, 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 blah. And then at the same time, I actually don't think it is so difficult to predict what is at least within the range of the possible and not. Um, I think that that's actually a dodge people make. And I look at a lot of the history of reformism and I see that people who got things done had to sort of work between these things, like what on the one hand arguing for what they thought is just, on the other hand arguing for like figuring out what is like the path to it. And my point here is not to make it an argument between what you and I think is possible in healthcare. My point here was more that I worry about urgency arguments being a way to sort of short-circuit a conversation, right? If the idea is that, well, I'm making this argument just because I think it is intolerable, people are dying. Um, well, okay. But if that if it's just about how bad you think things are, that doesn't actually help you all that much get things forward. Because a lot of people, as you were saying earlier, you can talk, I have talked to libertarians, like true, not social libertarians, like actual honest-to-God libertarians who work at Cato. And they are stirring, on their beliefs about the injustice in society. And then where they're taking that is not where I think society should go. And so I think that there ends up being a question of like, you do have to end up in a bit of these questions. Of, like, what is your view of human nature? And like, what is your view of political systems? Because otherwise, you know, a lot of good intentions have ended in quite, quite bad outcomes. And here I'm not talking about the Soviet Union. I'm just talking about failure. Well, I mean, yeah, they they are stirring. I always hear their rhetoric about the importance of freedom. And then you ask them something like, well, should an employer be allowed to fire a woman for getting pregnant? And they all go, um, well, freedom of contract is very important. Um, and you go, so yes, the answer is yes, an employer should be allowed to fire a woman for getting pregnant. So all the people who have that, who experience that, that's, that's fine. Do you have a problem with that? Do you have a problem with employers treating people as fungible profit maximizing units? And they kind of don't. So that's why I am very skeptical of all the stirring libertarian rhetoric, because when you get down to what it actually means in the world, it means the right to exploit and mistreat people because they don't really object to the way that employers exploit and mistreat and underpay people. And they don't object to the idea of a CEO making millions of dollars while someone else works for the company for $7.95 an hour. Um, so that's why I don't really, you know, I just don't buy that libertarianism is a very ethical system. <laughs> oh, I agree with that. Let me, I actually think Bernie Sanders is actually a good bridge here because I think it'll help us ground some of this. Because the argument you just made about Bernie Sanders is actually an argument about possibility. And it's an argument that I find a lot to like in Bernie Sanders. I've covered the guy for years. I think he's somebody who has a deep moral compass in politics, which not all of them do. But one thing that I always, when I read you on him, for instance, I see you describing a political project that I don't fully recognize because I've watched Bernie Sanders again for a long time. 
And he's a legislator, just sort of like, like I think, a better one than many, and but not all that. Like, he's not creating work stoppages, um, or he's not a sort of burn-down-the-house kind of guy in the way even Ted Cruz or Mike Lee are with parliamentary provision or parliamentary procedure. He's been out there. He's made compromises. He tries to get his amendments into bills. There is a view that you and a lot of other folks have on Sanders, that he is building something genuinely distinct, something very different than what Elizabeth Warren would want, something very different than what any other Democrat would do. Can just just explain it to me, like lay out to me what is different about the Bernie Sanders political project than sort of another almost equivalently or just genuinely liberal Democrat. So I think it's quite good that he's a legislator and that he takes, you know, he kind of tries to understand how Congress works. And that suggests to me that he's pragmatic, which is good. Um, I think Bernie Sanders' theory of what you do to enact political change in terms of what this presidential campaign is going to do is first you lay out a very clear agenda that is kind of radically different, but it's very intelligible. So, you know, eliminating student debt, uh, free college tuition, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, workplace democracy, criminal justice plan, you name it. Um, You lay that out and you move public opinion to embrace that agenda. And once you explain it to people and once you move the needle so that people want their politicians to enact these things. They understand these things. They understand what they could have and do not have. They could have a healthcare system where they don't have to think about money and it operated like the fire department. And Bernie Sanders says, you could have that. And people are denying you that. And he wants to get people upset about that so that they, so the depoliticized people become politicized so that you organize and activate people who have felt very, very disillusioned to the point where they, you know, don't even feel like voting. And then you build up a new crop of organizations and of leaders and of young legislators. And those people, people like AOC, start making, start challenging the Democratic Party and start saying, why do you believe why should college not be free if public high school is free? That's a question that the Democratic Party hasn't really had to face until Bernie Sanders and AOC. And now they have to defend the indefensible, which is mountains of debt. And you put you put them on the defensive and you get – and once you build public opinion around this very, very clear agenda that people don't understand why they can't have it and they're angry that you can't have it and you give them an opportunity to have it, you say, well, if you come and join our movement and you get our people into office and you know we challenge the people who don't subscribe to our agenda but are still in office uh, that they have to come on board or else you know we're going to take the fight to them – then you really have moved the boundaries of political possibility. And that's what I think Bernie's theory is. Now, I'm sure you don't think that theory will work, but I I see it as kind of different from what Elizabeth Warren is doing because I don't see her as being so much interested in challenging the Democratic Party and in organizing. And I certainly don't see the same kind of very clear messaging that is targeted at the public. A lot of it, it seems to be targeted at uh, policy people, this like confusing Medicare for all rollout instead of this like really, really simple messaging that says your health care should be free. It should be paid for. So I don't think she really has this theory of of how she's going to motivate this. You know, Bernie's thing is not me, us. We build all these young people that, you know, the DS people fly 
flood into the DSA. DSA people get on uh, local city councils and on the library board, and you move people the way that the Socialist Party in the early 1900s got legislation through in state legislators, not because there was ever a socialist majority, but because pieces of the socialist platform ended up being adopted by both parties because the socialists were the ones saying it is unacceptable that we don't have these workplace safety regulations. And your your senators are the reason that we don't have these these uh, these regulations. And then people sort of come around to supporting. And that's, you know, that's, again, the way the NHS came about was you built public opinion first. By the time there was a political fight about it, um, the 90 percent of people wanted a uh, national health service. And so it was really easy to fight the doctors because there was massive public demand. So I want to peel two things apart, because in some ways, that's actually not the answer I thought you were going to give me. So there's a question of which candidate is the best rhetorical arguer for policies that you would believe in, right? So we can, Elizabeth Warren was the one who led on student debt forgiveness. Bernie Sanders led on free college. They both have different versions of Medicare for all. And people can have a a debate over who they find more persuasive and compelling sort of on the stump. So who, in, in your kind of formulation here, who is more likely after repeated exposure to change the American people's minds on a given policy? But as I often hear the argument for Bernie Sanders, what I hear is something that has much more of a like an organizing and labor and class dimension to it, that it, it is something that is going to happen. I don't buy this whole not me, us thing as that almost all politicians have some version of that. Uh, Barack Obama's version of it was we are the ones we've been waiting for. I've heard it from – I mean except for Donald Trump's only I alone can fix it. <laughs> which oh, was yeah, a, right. Yeah. And actually that was notable because it was an unusual break from the political platitude of not me, us. Although, Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren's is she's got a plan. (laughs) Yeah, but she has. If you listen to her speeches, um, if like Bernie Sanders version of that is I wrote the damn bill. If you listen to Elizabeth Warren's speeches, she has a lot of stuff on a grassroots movement that is going to like rush through and break the. My point here is not to argue for Elizabeth Warren versus Bernie Sanders. My point here is actually to ask something a little bit different, which is the evidence that political leaders, um, particularly once they become a presidential nominee or a president, are able to turn public opinion is really quite bad. I actually wrote a New Yorker piece on this a couple of years back called The Unpersuaded or The Unpersuadable. Um, the, the evidence is that like it tends to actually move people in the other direction. What I'm always interested in with Bernie is this possibility that he's going to run some kind of like labor organizing or working class organizing, that there, there's some approach to politics that he wants to pioneer that, that is not what people see. On the other hand, Vermont tried to do single payer, and it's not like Sanders was able to marshal a grassroots movement in that state, which would have been a much easier thing than doing it nationally, such that that became the first state in the nation with single payer. Or similarly, there have been a bunch of things where you could have imagined some kind of outside-in political strategy and not me-us political strategy that was really wielding some kind of worker power to lead to political change. And I just don't see it. And so if we're just arguing about who's a better arguer, Warren or Sanders, um, my view is it's probably not going to be that different on the margin. I figured there's something more. So I'd like to hear if you think there's something that I'm missing there. Well, I, I mean, the first thing I'd say is I actually don't think we have much evidence that we can conclude what presidents can do. If the the position of people like me is that a socialist agenda is something distinct, it is something that has uniquely powerful appeal to people because of the way it touches their lives, because of the questions it forces them to ask that they haven't asked before, then, you know, what we would respond is that it's very different if you have a socialist president around 
our kind of agenda because we think our agenda is something that people haven't heard before. Now, this is a, this has not been tested, right? And you could say, well, we, you know, the data says that presidents don't change public opinion. But, you know, the socialists are going to say, well, do socialist ch- presidents change public opinion? But wait, has it, hasn't it been tested? I mean, we've had a lot of elections in this country. I mean, I, if, you can tell me if I'm misremembering this, but I think you were on the trail at some point with Abdul al-Sayed in Michigan. Yeah. He didn't win the Democratic. I mean, I think he's a very talented politician. And so there's nothing against him. He didn't win the Democratic primary or Medicare for all or at least single payer was literally on the ballot in Colorado. It got 80 percent of the of the of the um, folks voted against it in a year when Hillary Clinton won. My point is not that these things can't be popular, but we've seen a lot of people try to run. And I don't see a systemic I don't see systemic evidence that when you present people with a socialist agenda, it has some public opinion effect that other things don't have. I mean, I think there is a lot of test cases there. <laughs> the people have to hear about it first. I mean, one of the big problems with Abdul's campaign, this is one of the things I found out on Abdul's campaign that was rather shocking to me in terms of money and politics and the kind of, if, and the world that we, the economic world that we now inhabit was Abdul didn't get really any coverage in Michigan press because there wasn't any Michigan press. We're on Abdul's campaign bus, it was us, a guy from the Baffler, a guy from the Nation, Local Michigan papers have been consolidated and don't exist. And so, you know, getting your message out is really difficult. I watched Abdul in the office spend, he was spending 40 hours a week calling donors, begging for money. So he couldn't do television advertising because he didn't have, he had almost no money. And it was really, really difficult to put together this kind of campaign. Now, at the events that Abdul held, they were stunning. They were like things that you haven't, they did feel qualitatively different from things I've I've been at before. They were really, like, there were all these people who were excited about a particular set of things that they thought could now happen. And so I thought that it wasn't a problem with his theory that, um, you know, if people that people would respond, people were responding. And I think he did quite well considering the hurdles that he was up against. So it's very, it's very difficult to know what to conclude when you start out at the fringe, right? I mean, people say, oh, well, Bernie's candidates aren't winning. You go, well, we, we're socialists. We never win elections. The fact that we've got any people in Congress is is stunning, is absolutely stunning. The fact that Bernie Sanders went from being a 5% candidate to, you know, nearly taking the Democratic nomination away from Hillary Clinton, that is absolutely stunning. That is a huge shift. He's open democratic socialist. So I don't think we've run this experiment yet. We're running the experiment now. And if we fail, then you you could tell us that we that we failed. And <laughs> but first, we'd really, really like to try. Well, to be fair, I actually also want it to try. <laughs> Just like to to be honest, because I think it's important to see. But but whether it's Bernie or somebody sort of like Bernie, I think that, frankly, I don't agree that um, that the folks who are Democratic socials in Congress now are all that different from – I mean, I think it's a bit of a rebranding of people who were previously considered like true liberals and progressives. I don't think that – I just don't agree that um, Bernie Sanders is so far to the left of what you've seen in the Democratic Party for a long time. And like that's true on his voting record and other things. But nevertheless, I do want to see this mobilization and movement um, given a chance to, to, to wield power. But – I don't know. Like to me, when I listen to this, it's some you sometimes get into a version of it sounds like the politics here can only be failed. They can't fail. So I don't know. Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, 
A couple of years ago, I was hearing about how Corbyn just shows, like Bernie Sanders here, that if you actually expose his stuff, it's incredibly popular. And Jeremy Corbyn seems like an unfucking believable disaster to me. I mean, the fact that given how bad the conservative party has governed that country and the unbelievable shambles of their series of prime ministers, that Labor can't cobble back together a majority and Boris Johnson is going to be the prime minister, it just turns my stomach. I think Sanders is actually an amazing politician. But as you say, I mean, we'll see what happens in the primary. But depending on the week you look at it, he's running second or third. Um, he's not yeah. at 56 percent way ahead of everyone else because people know that he's got a different agenda. Uh, one of the things here that I really want to be clear on is my point here is not that these ideas are unpopular because I don't think they are. At least some of them are and some of them aren't. It's just that it seems to me that it ends up playing out just much more like politics always plays out, that Bernie Sanders, if you look at his approval ratings or his matchup with Donald Trump, he just looks like the other Democrats. He doesn't look like some totally unique political force. And to be honest, I just wrote a book that's going to come out in a couple months, and I'm, I make this argument at much like greater length about Donald Trump, that Donald Trump looked very different from the Republicans, and now he just polls yeah. and won like a normal Republican. So there's a way in which I think my skepticism doesn't come so much from being skeptical of socialism as you would define it. It comes from being skeptical that anything is really able to break through the partisan or political identity grooves that have been cut so deeply into our politics and then through our political institutions. Well, you don't need to break through very far, right? Because, I mean, Hillary Clinton nearly won the election in 2016. So if Bernie could push a little further by activating people, then we can actually get someone in power who has a, an agenda that is much further to the left. The fact that Bernie Sanders polls like an ordinary Democrat is kind of amazing considering what people have said about people who call themselves socialists in the past, right? And said that, you know, you're going to end up McGovern. You're just going to, if you run too far to the left, it's going to be a catastrophe. Well, the first thing is not a catastrophe. Now, you mentioned Corbyn. It's interesting because the 2017 election, right, Labour increased its vote by a historic margin, the largest increase in vote since 1945, since the Attlee government. Now, that's that's quite an achievement. Um, that's from, that's from one election to the next. Yeah. Yeah. From one election but to it, the next. But it still the wasn't a majority. In, so so the no, it wasn't a majority, but they managed to increase. So putting Corbyn in place gave a huge boost to Labour's share of the vote over the previous election. Now, it's very, very difficult because the the British press is vicious. And I know because I know members of my family are in Britain and they get their news from the British press. And. My grandmother would never vote for Jeremy Corbyn, even though I've laid out like, you know, all of the things that she believes in he supports. And it's because she just doesn't trust him. She just doesn't trust him. And the reason she doesn't trust him is that the paper she reads every morning tells her that Jeremy Corbyn is going to destroy everything she loves. And that worries her. It frightens her. They tell her that hordes of immigrants are going to come into, in, into her city, right? They, they, like, that has a real effect. That's what he's fighting against. So I don't really know that we can conclude it's a, it's a disaster. Um, you know, And also, it's a real matter of justice. So if you can get the same vote, even if you get the same vote percentage with Bernie Sanders as you could with Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden is not animated by an outrage at student debt. In fact, what he said with millennials was, give me a break. Right? I, I have no empathy. That's what Joe Biden said about millennials and debt when he was asked about it. So if you can have that or you can have Bernie Sanders, I think it's pretty clear which one we want. 
So I think I have a, just a different interpretation of the Corbyn performance. I think if I said to you, Hillary Clinton got more votes than any candidate in history, and she has the press bias against her, both of which things I think are basically true, um, you would sort of laugh at me if I said, that shows she's like a great um, political figure because you got to win, right? To make people's lives better, you got to win. And what is happening in the UK is going to hurt a lot of people, right? In terms of like my moral urgency, it's a failure. Like it is, I cannot fucking believe the Tories are going to keep running. Anyway, it's a, we'll see. we don't it's need too, to argue the know, case. The election stuff. hasn't happened as that of, is true. As of this if, moment. It, I could look super <laughs> wrong about this. And if so, I will say aloud no. that I was super wrong right. about it. Um, that said, what you're saying about Sanders, I think here is really interesting. And I want to pull it out for a minute because there's, I think, a popular version of what is the socialist plan for American takeover which is when you expose people to socialist ideas that totally changes their minds and voting patterns will change and, you know, you'll win West Virginia. And and I don't buy that. But I think there's another totally reasonable approach to this, which is actually it's a plan of elite level replacement. That if you just take the theory that I just laid out a couple minutes ago, somewhat cynically, that you can almost now fit anything into the same grooves in American politics and you say, okay, well, then what that means is you can replace Hillary Clinton with Bernie Sanders and you can replace um, Crowley with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, you know, you keep doing that down the line and you actually don't need to win over people you haven't won over before. It's not getting all of these non-voters off of the sidelines. It's just a consistent strategy of um, Democratic elite replacement such that when Democrats, if they ever do again, given the geography of this country, have an opportunity to pass something, what they pass is student debt forgiveness not um, or free college, not, you know, whatever kind of more modest incremental version they would have tried to do before that. That's a huge difference. And I think that people don't make that argument actually enough, but I think that's a much more plausible pathway forward. And it doesn't there's no obvious reason to me that it wouldn't work. Yeah, I mean, that may be what has happened uh, in when socialist candidates have gotten elected at the local level and at the state level. Um, and I think it's good. I think it has a very good effect. Like, for example, like uh, a socialist judge got elected in Houston. Now, Houston was once the capital of capital punishment, you know, very conservative place. And now it's not. You could say, well, this is demographic shifts or whatever. But the fact that we have a socialist and he pushed the elimination of cash bail which is much more radical than anything that some ordinary Democrat would have typically pushed. And they're about to, I think they're about to get it. I mean, it's really seriously close. Um, There's a socialist judge in Pennsylvania who has all but eliminated uh, evictions in his court because he's a socialist who detests evictions. He sees the idea of an eviction as, as, as being horrendous. And ordinary Democratic judges who would have filled that spot would not have had that real same you know, <laughs> that feeling that like eviction is a horrible thing and we need to do everything possible to avoid having to evict someone. So, I mean, yeah, if I, I don't really in that case, I don't really mind which theory of change is true, but it does suggest that we should push for things that are as close to our ideal as we possibly can. And, you know, Bernie's got a radical left agenda and I like a radical left agenda and it doesn't seem like it hurts him. The, they used to tell you that it would hurt you, but if it doesn't hurt you and you can still you sort of run as competitively with Donald Trump as Hillary Clinton could, and maybe you can even make a better argument, um, then hell, let's do it. Yeah, and it seems like that, I mean, it seems like that's also an agenda of primary challenging. So I think that there's approaches to agendas that are about winning over new people, and there's approaches to agendas that are about sort of factional replacement. And something that is my understanding, at least from the outside, of, say, the Justice Democrats group is that when that was formed, it had a lot of ideas about how it would run in red districts. Um, you would have these sort of populist candidates coming in and winning things that hadn't been won. 
And now there's um, at least somewhat more emphasis on challenging more conservative than you would expect Democrats who represent safe blue districts under the theory that it might be true that you need more, quote unquote, moderate candidates in districts that understand themselves as being more red. Um, we can sort of debate terminology in that. But that there's no reason to have a cautious Democrat representing right. some part of coastal California or something. Like San Francisco. Like San Francisco. <laughs> Although it is an interesting thing to me, the question of Nancy Pelosi, because there are actually a bunch of people out here who are trying to do primary challenges on her. And on the other hand, it's funny, Pelosi doesn't act really like a – Pelosi is a speaker, right? And so she's acting as a sort of tribune of the entire Democratic Party and what it thinks it needs or at least what she thinks it needs channeling her members. But it creates a real potential long-term vulnerability for her here if people here don't value having the speaker. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what uh, Shahid Batak told me when I interviewed him about you know, how he was going to run against Pelosi was to emphasize the local and the district. And you have to represent the district. And when you have Pelosi mocking the Green New Deal, the Green New whatever or whatever they call it, she said, she's not representing the whole Democratic Party because she has sort of open contempt for the left wing of the party, right? She says, I'm not I'm not on board with uh, Medicare for all. You know, she said, you know, Bush's lies about Iraq weren't impeachable, which, you know, she's really, really disappointing if you're a person on the left. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm glad that there is someone, I don't know if it's going to work because she's incredibly powerful and well-funded person. So, and I also, so I don't want to put too much on like if, uh, one of the if one of the left candidates can't unseat her, that proves that even San Francisco won't tolerate our our brand of socialist politics because I don't think that's necessarily what's going on. But I do think it's very, very worth uh, trying in that kind of district. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. You know, when I was reading you sort of six months ago, what I got was you really hate Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden. You like Bernie Sanders and you like Elizabeth Warren a little bit less, but still a lot. And more recently, you've had a harder turn on Warren or at least seemed to be treating her more as a threat. I'd be curious to hear 
what has happened there? Because to me, if anything, Elizabeth Warren has moved left over the past six months. <sighs> yeah, right. So I still despise uh, Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden with equal vehemence. I mean, one thing is that because Elizabeth Warren wasn't polling very well early, it was you know, you could you could really see her as a, a really important force in the party who was helping, who was echoing a lot of Bernie's message. And, uh, you know, I thought she was having a positive influence. But at this point, when she became front runner, you have to give someone way, way, way more scrutiny and you have to listen more closely to what they're saying and think about whether there are real differences. And as I read more and as I dove closer beyond just sort of her campaign trail rhetoric, which is very similar to Bernie's, and as I saw that on foreign policy, she's very, very different, right? I mean, the Wall Street Journal praised her for supporting Trump on Venezuela. You know, she's, you know, on Israel, she's really not very good. On Bolivia, she was, you know, if you're a leftist, right? She's, uh, you know, and, and then when Amy Goodman asked her, you know, should billionaires exist? Bernie says they shouldn't exist. She said, no, she laughed. She kind of laughed. It was, you know, the idea of getting rid of billionaires. Well, that's like a socialist uh, litmus test is, do you believe in billionaires? And she said, well, you know, if you worked hard and you built something and one of the core pieces of socialist analysis is that that's not, in fact, that's not how you should talk about people who own giant amounts of capital because it's the capital doing the work for them a lot of the time and innovators don't actually get rewarded, they get crushed. But so before when she'd said things like, you know, I'm capitalist to my bones and, you know, that made us go, okay, well, well, you know, maybe she's not quite like us, um, but, uh, but you know, she's good. She's saying the same thing. She's saying the right things. Um, she was very vague on Medicare for All at the start. You know, then she, you know, she had this, this sort of uh, what is considered a blunder where she said, um, you know, she, she'd do it in two phases. I mean, Sanders has a transition plan, too. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I mean it, I it's in it's, the same bill, arguably. Yeah. So maybe it's not two phases, but he's got a kind of period where it's not fully. Im- anyway, it's uh, what, what people saw I'm not sure how different as, they really are is, oh, it's not going to happen. And, and not just leftists. Right. Um, you know, uh, Jordan Weissman of Slate said that Reason magazine said, oh, this is a signal that it's not going to actually happen. And people have been wondering whether Elizabeth Warren was serious about Medicare for all because when she was asked about it so many times, she would say, well, there are lots of different approaches and, you know, I'm very open. And she did, she hadn't made it clear on her website for a while. So there was already some kind of suspicion. And what I would characterize it as is I was and Jacobin was because Jacobin also kind of shifted on Elizabeth Warren. We were sort of giving her the benefit of the doubt and then there were certain things when we started looking into it because it became more important to examine what the differences were and whether those differences mattered. There are certain things that did seem to really matter and then certain cues like, I mean, she just said that she would consider appointing Joe Biden as her vice president, which to us is crazy. That's just crazy. Why would you I, ever I, want Joe I Biden? Would, I would suggest that maybe that was not quite as literal a comment as you're making it sound. I mean, one of the things that I've thought reading Jacobin and you during this period is, and I say this as somebody who, um, I have my disagreements with Warren and, and Buttigieg and Sanders and all of them, but I think um, I, I, I think Warren is, a, in many ways, a very, she's a very committed politician. I see something that I see in Sanders with her, which is a pretty deep moral compass. Um, and the thing that was striking to me in some of these dimensions, I think the case you make on foreign policy is true. I think that Sanders is considerably to the left of the other major Democratic candidates on foreign policy. And like if and that's a damn good reason to vote for him, actually. 
But on some of these other things, like you were just saying that Warren got asked if billionaires should exist. And she says, well, look, if you build it, um, which is sort of her long term, like capitalism is rigged. But if it wasn't rigged, it would be more reasonable. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders used to rage against millionaires and billionaires. And then he became a millionaire. And then when asked about it, he said, well, I became a millionaire writing books, and I think that's awesome. Now, you, to your credit, I think, wrote a wrote a piece saying that's bad, R- right? That's bad, Bernie. But I think, I mean, when I look at that from the outside, it implies to me they're just not that different on that question, that if Bernie became a billionaire, he would just be like, well, you know, if you can become a billionaire being a good guy, that's great. Um, and so one of the things I wonder is how do you keep, I guess the big question I'm asking you here, because I think with both you and Jacobin, It's gotten Bernie Sanders has become sort of like the one true candidate. Um, It's not to say like the preferred candidate, but like the only true keeper of the faith. And there's a very high level of scrutiny you apply to other people more than I think to him. So how do you keep the stuff from collapsing when there really is only one candidate who has been on the front lines of this for so long into sort of a cult of personality? Well, I did. I I mean, as you say, I did apply uh, the same level of scrutiny to him because when he did something that conflicted with my values, I was very scathing about it. I said, you know, uh, we <laughs> socialists probably shouldn't be millionaires. We should pay our fair share. Now, there's a huge difference between millionaires and billionaires. It's a thousand times more. I mean, it makes you you know, such a more powerful person. So I think, you know, uh, and, and that's why one of the things that the fact that there have been billionaires who have donated to war and the fact that there was a good article in Vox about Wall Street people going, actually, maybe like these regulations will help us make money better. And, you know, not many Wall Street people, they're in the minority faction. But the fact that there are, that that sort of thing is developing where they go, yeah, I know a few Warren people. They don't know any Sanders people because everyone in Wall Street despises No, there was an article on Wall Street people who supported Bernie Sanders, too. Yeah, but it's interesting when you look at the difference. There's one in 2016 about, like, the dissidents. And they're like, they're like, when, when they're quoted, they go, I don't know anyone else who supports Bernie. I'm like a loner. They're like weird loners. But then the Vox article about the Wall Street people who supported Warren was like, you know, there's a growing, there's really a growing contingent where people go, no, capitalism, capitalism with rules. That's what we rally around, capitalism with rules, because they're not socialists. Capitalism with rules can appeal to people because, in fact, Elizabeth Warren, when she goes to Wall Street people and talks to them, says, you know, and when she went on uh, Larry Kudlow to pitch uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Larry Kudlow comes out going, yeah, that sounds right. Markets have to have rules. And that is just a, <laughs> it's just a very, very, it's very different. And we are very suspicious of that because we have a sense that the rules are going to end up being made by people who are from the industry. And in fact, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau ended up staffed with uh, a lot of people who were veterans of the finance industry. And that feels like something that Bernie almost certainly would never have done is put finance industry people in any position of power. And I suspect I have a very strong suspicion that a Warren administration would welcome the participation of people from the finance and consulting uh, industries because I think that Elizabeth Warren is very comfortable around those kinds of people. I mean, her daughter worked at McKinsey. She's from Harvard Law School. She's really, you know, enmeshed, embedded in this in the, that kind of uh, culture. So that is a real difference that people sense. I, two things on this, and I actually think this is in some ways a good bridge to, to Buttigieg for a minute, which is it's very funny to me that this particular argument – let me not say it that way. This particular argument is interesting to me because on the one hand, I think – 
in, from the left perspective, the best case for Bernie Sanders is he really is much more left on foreign policy than the other key candidates. With Warren, I think the best case for Warren is she really is much more interested and attentive to who is doing rulemaking than the other Democratic candidates. I mean, to what you're just saying, it was Warren, not Bernie Sanders, who led the fight against Antonia Weiss becoming the, I think it was undersecretary for finance under Obama. And in many ways, Warren was much more, she would fight the Obama administration on these personnel and regulatory questions, much more than Sanders did. To me, a huge difference between them and actually a reason to wonder about Warren on Medicare for all, just in terms of prioritizing is that Warren is very focused on regulatory structure and market structure, and Bernie Sanders is very focused on redistribution. And like my suspicion of the two candidates is she would be more, she is likelier to be more aggressive in terms of how she structures market rules and who she allows on and so on than Sanders, who I think is going to focus a lot more of his energy in terms of basically taxing and, and, and redistributing. But the thing you said there, so I don't, I'm not sure I buy one of the cuts you made, but the place where I think I do buy that is you wrote another piece about Pete Buttigieg. And in some ways, I actually felt of everything you've written that helped me sort of understand where you were coming from better than most, which is just a very deep skepticism of people who seem relatively comfortable with the, the meritocracy, right? People who went to Harvard, like you just sort of did a drive-by on Elizabeth Warren because her daughter worked for McKinsey. Um, McKinsey, at, it's, a, it's an I'm evil not, institution. I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing about McKinsey. Um, I've never worked for McKinsey, so I, I'm very pure on this. But... I guess one question I have for that, and this is not a question of hypocrisy, it's more a question of principles. Like when you were attacking sort of Buttigieg for Harvard and Elizabeth Warren was at Harvard Law, you're a Harvard sociology student. So what makes somebody like when can somebody participate in these things and be pure and when can they not? Well, in fact, uh, you notice what I said in the article is what you should be is very skeptical. I think there is what we call a rebuttable presumption, right? And the people should be skeptical of me, too. And in fact, what I compare Pete, or I contrast Pete Buttigieg with Abdul Al-Sayed, who is a Rhodes Scholar who made his way up the American meritocracy. And I distinguish between the two of them, which is Pete Buttigieg got out of Oxford and he decided to go into consulting. And when I read his memoir, he didn't seem to show any awareness of social injustice. That didn't even seem to enter his, con even in his memoir, like now, like he didn't notice it at Harvard. He didn't have a critique of Harvard as an institution, even when the dining hall workers were agitating for higher wages. In fact, he called the student activists social justice warriors. Abdul, on the other hand, went to the Detroit Health Department and tried to get kids, poor kids, free glasses. That was his big thing. He hasn't worked in the private sector, right? He I'm yes, I and in fact when I when I wrote my original article on Abdul Al Sayed, I wrote a very skeptical article that said, you know, is Abdul Al Sayed the real deal? And I said, I worry because I feel like some of many of these Rhodes Scholar types are doing what I saw at law school, uh, which was, you know, you go for a couple of years and you put in your public service and then you just go and join the establishment. And, you know, how do we know that Abdul means what he says? And when I started looking at Abdul's policies and looking what he, at what he had done and what he had made it clear that he valued, then I thought we could trust Abdul. And Pete Buttigieg, I had the opposite reaction. I screwed him. I opened his memoir because I wanted, I didn't really know much about Pete Buttigieg in the, in, except that there was a lot of talk about Pete Buttigieg. And I wondered if he was another Abdul type, who was this kind of uh, class traitor, or whether he was the type of person that I know very well from those institutions who is very good 
at giving the stirring rhetoric, very good at trying to win the student body president election, but really ultimately doesn't have what I describe in the book, the socialist ethic, the fire in the belly, the real outrage. And that's the sort of thing that you, you're really trying to measure for. And Pete Buttigieg, very, very clear that he doesn't have, you can pick up his book, you can try and look through it for a sense that he even is aware of like economic inequality and racial inequality in South Bend. And he isn't. So that discredits him in my mind. So I don't agree that he's not aware of it, but I but the part where I do agree is that it does seem to me that a big cut in I'll call it Democratic Party politics, but you could call it left politics or different ways of structuring it, is just on some fundamental level, do you seem okay with the structures or not? And and this will maybe bring us full circle in our conversation, but one of the things I found frustrating about um your book and, and Baskar's book a little bit and some of the books about socialism is that they will not give me what I often want, which is this blueprint of this is what I'm saying you should do with society. Like, this is how I want to structure things. This is what democracy would look like. But it does seem to me that what you're saying on a, on a pretty deep level when you talk about the socialist ethic and then when you talk about Pete Buttigieg, and I think you're sort of being unfair to Elizabeth Warren, but so be it, is that like the difference here is like just do you think this is a toxic, fucked up mess or not, right? Do you think it's, to, to use the Occupy sign, do you think it's all fucked up and bullshit or not? And that, you can be a lot of different kinds of person to be a little bit ungrammatical about it and be disgusted. And you can also have a lot of different kinds of ideas and, and different kinds of people and sort of be OK. And that that kind of cut between do you radiate a disgust or an okayness is to you and sort of to a lot of people in the space like that is a dividing line. That is how you know if you can trust someone or not. Is that basically fair? Yeah. I mean, so I was at Yale Law School for law school and kind of form my my sensibility here, which is, are you a person who finds this place fine? And are you comfortable here? Or are you very, very uncomfortable here because you see that people are being trained to go to amoral law firms that are where their job is going to be to try and discredit and destroy plaintiffs and bury them in discovery paperwork? And do you think that those firms are okay institutions? Do you accept this argument that suggests that, well, you know, we just do work for the client and it doesn't matter who the client is. And that's why McKinsey is so amoral because they don't care who the client is. The client could be, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, <laughs> quite literally. Quite, right? quite literally. <laughs> quite literally. It could be opioid manufacturers. It could be anyone. And they just about like, and, and so do you, are you comfortable at a place like that? And people who judge, comfortable at a place like doesn't he he didn't even have a critique of McKinsey till five minutes ago in fact he defended it when people brought up opioid manufacturers he said you know no one ever asks this about lawyers and we should ask that about lawyers we should ask it about everyone who participates in these sort of amoral profit maximizing institutions that don't care whether the consequence of what they do is incredibly harmful to people. And I've seen so many people in elite circles who say, oh, I, I, you know, I'm committed to opposing injustice. But ultimately, they're kind of fine with these places that the ultimate social consequence of, I think, is very, very negative. One of the things that seems to me to be just true is there's a, I like the I like the use word amoral because I think that sometimes it sounds like what people are debating about is like moral or immoral. 
But in some ways where people get into much more trouble is in amoral because mm-hmm. it's easier to say you're against bad things, but it's hard to try to keep an eye on just what – on whether the, the things that present themselves as neutral are actually bad and toxic. It's something that has been like a big theme of my work on, on animal rights and I know you've done some, I think, really great writing on factory farming. Um, but there's a lot in society that the amount of pressure to see it as neutral – is very heavy. And it takes a lot of work to not see it as neutral. I'm probably softer than you are on people who don't see it as neutral, in part because um, I just think it's really difficult and people end up in different positions. But nevertheless, I think it's a it's an interesting and I think a reasonable test to have for people. Like if you're going to be leading a society, can you see from outside of it too, right? Not just like from within the structures and the boundaries of what people say is the acceptable uh, bounds of discourse. Can you say what you think is bad and good within that? But can you step outside the acceptable bounds of discourse and say whether or not you think the boundaries themselves are good or bad? And like that seems to me to be the the socialist ethic argument here, that you got to be like able to be outside of it too. Yeah. And one reason that socialists sort of critique the corporate form, corporations as entities, is because of that kind of that that amorality. I mean, I talk in, in this book about, you know, for example, you know, so Milton Friedman wrote this article, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. And you say, and a lot of people in business accept the kind of formulation that says, well, all we do around here is we sell products and people give us their money voluntarily and it's 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 neutral. And then when you actually step out and you go, well, what is the ultimate consequence of that? And if you're an opioid manufacturer, it's, you know, trying to get as many people hooked as possible and then lie about it if you have to. If you're a fossil fuel, uh, if you're a fossil fuel company, it involves uh, deceiving the public and trying to manipulate their impressions of climate change. If you're Coca-Cola, it involves trying to get as many people to replace water with Coca-Cola as possible. And that is something fundamental to the institution and the institution looks neutral. But from outside, when you start to try and apply some standards, it ends up not being very neutral at all. Yeah, but have you ever tried water? Yeah, water's gross, <laughs> you know. I say as a constant Diet Coke drinker. Um, th- this is why, to some degree for me, the most productive of these fights is actually between, at least on, on this level, is between sort of socialists like yourself, um, and I'm going to kind of group all the different forms of socialists in together with what I would call, I don't want to call them libertarians. That's actually not what I'm trying to get at here. But but there's an argument you might call like Stephen Pinkerians. You have a, de- I don't want to call it a debate, but you've sort of written a rebuttal to Tyler Cowen's book, Stubborn Attachments, that I think gets at some of this fight, which is, I think there's an argument from the Milton Friedman perspective, and you gloss it very quickly talking about the philosopher Joseph Heath in your book, which is that a society that looks amoral, that operates on market logic in the long term, even if it doesn't feel this way to you, is going to produce the best outcomes. And then there's this counterargument that no, it won't. But in some ways, I think that's actually one of the more useful arguments that just like do you buy the story that it may look bad, but Ultimately, the incentives of selfish oriented, selfishness-oriented growth are better for everybody because that's what creates this kind of super-powered technological advancement, which is the real thing that drives human um, advances or not. Um, and that's a that's an argument that I think doesn't kind of happen as much in purified form anymore, but is still a pretty useful one. Although you could, we can also say that it, the argument in some ways – might not matter because you could prove if you could prove for example that the slave system was the optimal was you know improved welfare maximized the welfare function overall over the course of the period of time 
you would still not have an argument that slavery or an argument that we should buy. You'd have an argument. Um, but the people who oppose slavery would still be right. And so, you know, one thing that I think socialists need to make clear is that we recognize actually capitalism's phenomenal productive potential, right? I mean, Karl Marx understood just how powerful capitalism was at producing. But we also have a sense that the injustices here they, we really don't accept the rationalizations. One reason we don't accept the rationalizations is because at least some of them are completely false, right? At least some of the, like, oh, people get rich on the basis of their innovations or their hard work is just false because the people who work the hardest get the least money um, and because the innovators don't actually get rich. I mean, Peter Thiel has a thing where he says, like, you get rich by being a, mon a monopolist. You don't get rich by being a scientist, right? The scientists, the people who invent the stuff, you know, <laughs> they, they never see the actual financial financial yield, right? So some of the some of the rationalizations, the rationalizations that are given and for uh extreme wealth uh you know you i have i have a, a thing that i wrote that pissed a lot of people off where i said you know uh just being extremely wealthy is immoral and that was the thing that i applied to bernie sanders but one thing that i think is important about seeing the possession of wealth in a time of deprivation as immoral is people like warren buffett and say stephen pinker say the rich are not rich because the poor are poor we need to focus on lifting up the bottom and in one sense, that may or may not be true. But in another sense, it's absolutely true that the poor are poor because the rich are rich, because the rich could just give away all of their money. You don't have to be a billionaire. You didn't. It's not a condition that you ended up with, which is why it's very funny when they say they're being persecuted and people, you know, attacks on the on the rich. You choose to be like that. You choose to spend, for example, one hundred twenty thousand dollars on a banana taped to a wall rather than paying off ten people's medical GoFundmes. And that's why socialists really are very skeptical of these arguments because we find they end up justifying things that are very obviously grotesque and that really don't need to persist. There's absolutely no reason. The only reason that um, people in the French Quarter who are sleeping on the streets can't sleep in the empty condos above them is because other people won't let them. That's the only thing stopping them right now. So that is a preventable injustice because it is a choice that is being made. And one of the things that I try and emphasize a lot is the way that a lot of these economic arguments treat employers and landlords as kind of like uh, they, they can't they can't choose to do anything else, right? People pay the market. Wages are decided by the market, not by employers. Well, I know that in one sense that's not true because I Current Affairs is an employer and we set, you know, the wages that we can afford to pay people. It's true. But we set, you know, I we give people more than we necessarily, the bare minimum we would have to get to get them to work for the company because we think that's fair. Um, so some of it's very, very false. You know, landlords will, will put the rent up. A lot of libertarian economics is... Like, this will happen. You go, well, it will happen because you've made a choice to pay the CEO 300 times what you pay the worker. And the CEO has made a choice to accept that rather than saying, no, that's an incredibly unfair structure. I think a lot of that's true. But even though I'm probably more on your side of this argument than the other, I'm going to take the other anyway, which is to say that I don't think you're actually being fair to what is being alleged, which is that it's not that when you listen to a Warren Buffett on this, or maybe I shouldn't attribute it to him, but this world of thinking. It's not that the poor aren't poor because the rich are rich. It's that the poor getting less poor because the rich are getting richer. And that's like the China argument. I think the best, the, the singularly best argument here is the China argument, which is to say that 
at least when China was being governed along what were supposed to be socialist principles, it was a festival of immiseration and famine and death. And as it began to become a place where you actually did have millionaires and even billionaires, hundreds of millions of people were lifted out of poverty. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a social safety net. It doesn't mean you should have those billionaires. I'm not a fan of oligarchic authoritarianism, Chinese capitalism. So my point here is not to make a strong argument on behalf of that as an ideal social system. But it is to say that one of the frustrations to me of kind of this debate, and it's why I sort of signal this uh, a little bit towards the book too, is that it's a lot easier to argue a debate between an ethic and a reality. If we could see what it meant to put the socialist utopia into practice, not Scandinavia, which sort of you also say is just like a waypoint along the way and has a lot of other dimensions to it that are hard to reproduce, but just what does it look like when you have a system built around these worker co-ops? Who is advantaged? Who is exploited? Because people will be exploited. Um, you know, I've been in a lot of – I've, as we all have, have operated under social structures that don't work purely under market considerations. And I've been exploited or bullied yeah. or oh, whatever, yeah. right? Like lots of bad things happen in all kinds of right. systems. And so the the debate between the kind of the ethic and the reality is always going to be a hard debate for the reality to be part of. But I think the question that like long run sort of needs to be – either it's a very productive tension or you sort of have to say that the question that is ultimately kind of difficult here is in the long run – would the reality of the other one produce more living standards? It's funny, when you were talking earlier about the NHS and healthcare is one of the things I know better than other things, one reason I would not make the NHS my global healthcare system is that I actually think the arguments about innovation are true um, to some degree. And so I would want something. I would worry that if you did a kind of NICE-level rationing for the entire world and nobody was paying the rates of some of the innovation that does seem to work, in the long run, you'd get fewer technological health advances and you wouldn't have as much of a rise in living standards, which is why I prefer at least somewhat mixed systems that have some pressure valves for that. Now, I can imagine my improvements on all of them, but that's, I think, where, where you get into this. So there's an argument that the overall incentive structure does work, not compared to the ideal, but compared to the actual alternatives. Yeah, and usually the argument is made based on pretty selective evidence, right, because you don't look at... So, for example, like China is an interesting Rorschach test where like the market people attribute all of the uh, gains to liberalization. And then but then also the country is heavily state run economy. It's got 150,000 state run enterprises. Most of the largest Chinese companies are still kind of state run. And in fact, there are elements where the introduction of the market market system actually made made things worse for people like the the healthcare system so you can you can say oh well it's industrial policy or oh it's markets maybe one of the one of the things though that i think is really important is even if it's true about the incentive structure i, I mean it is a very plausible argument that says like if you offer just people the possibility of boundless wealth you'll get a, a in in return for you know whatever they're able to exchange they'll try and give people what they want you can make that argument I think one crucial thing to note in it is that it still does not justify the existence of billionaires because it might put the onus on those people's ethics, right? So so what I mean is that like one way that I depart from a lot of socialists is that like I have this kind of – I'm not a Christian, but I, I call it this kind of Christian approach where like I believe it is morally grotesque if you are extremely wealthy, not to just give away all your wealth immediately. <laughs> like, And so it is still a system 
that has an incredible amount of because you you're you're killing people. You could save lives, right? You could be saving human lives every day that you are choosing. Your choices do matter. And so we still have a society that is morally grotesque, even if we believe that the economic structure that we have put in place ultimately maximizes the amount of whatever and all we, we're just going to do some redistribution. Um, really, there isn't enough evidence to conclude one way or the other, I don't think, whether a substantially more socialized economy would that used a mixture of uh, state institutions and worker co-ops and some things that were just small and privately run um, and then had, you know, very, very strong commons, you know, and and a lot of free at the point of use services, that that would fail um, because we haven't really tried socialism in the sense that today's socialists mean it. And the, some of the evidence is that if you move along the spectrum from the United States to things that are more, more socialistic, um, you know, this is why socialists talk about the Nordic countries so much. It's not because they you know, want to avoid the argument of whether they're capitalist or not, but they're certainly much more socialistic in the sense that they have a lot of more of the things that we believe are present in a good society. I don't know where you'd end up, but if you ended up at a point where you said, like, we need um, private property, we need the incentive to to innovate and what have you, we need uh, people to be able to get really, really super rich uh, for uh, in inventing a new kind of financial product, <laughs> um, those people, if they kept their wealth, if they chose not to use that wealth for the betterment of other people, which they would still be horrendous, horrendous people with a lot of power at the top. That's a great place, I think, to end in the, uh, although I don't quite mean for it to end on socialism has never been tried, but but it's good. I think your point about there being a personal ethic dimension to this is often underplayed in political conversations and the degree to which our political philosophies are also moral philosophies, I think, often gets missed. Um, let me ask you the question we used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Um, I would say... Noam Chomsky's Understanding Power, which is a really good introduction to his thought because it's a series of dialogues between him and members of the public where they kind of ask him you know, often critical questions. Um, I really like Understanding Power. Um, <laughs> there's a book that I love that is a similar kind of introduction called The Anarchist FAQ. Um, and I've drawn a lot of inspiration from the anarchist tradition, even though I think it's too skeptical of the possibilities for having a state that works. Um, I really like The Anarchist FAQ by Ian McKay. And uh, the third is The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, uh, which is a novel. And it is about two worlds. And one of the worlds is a kind of anarchistic, socialistic society. And one of the worlds is much more like our own, where it has much more material wealth, but it also has a lot of people who have to suffer so that that material wealth is generated. And that, in fact, that novel poses kind of the question that you asked me at the end, which is, is it worth it? 
is what is the people's the the people who have to and that was a question Ursula Le Guin was very interested in because she also has a famous short story about a society where a child is being tortured and that's the only bad thing about society it's otherwise a utopia and would you accept that utopia or would you go to this you know the anarchist socialist world which has a lot less but also doesn't have things that ordinary people would look at and recoil in moral horror Nathan Robinson thank you very much thanks Nathan All right, that is the show. Thank you to Nathan for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and my email, as always, for feedback, guest suggestions, whatever, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, More than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.